morning, church. I'll be reading from Matthew 18, verse 1 to 20. Um, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such in my name, whoever receives one child such in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little children who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Whoever, woe to to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to, to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is... So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he, lis- if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Um, it's a joy to look at God's word together. Um, there's a lot to kind of look at in this passage. Um, so we are going to need God's help to, to go through it. Um, and hopefully, and, and we need God's spirit to make it clear. We need God's spirit to make the truth of his word clear. So let's pray. Let's go to God in prayer now. Let's ask that God would make his word clear. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the treasure of your word. We thank you for the gospels in particular where we can see your son, Jesus Christ, and where we can hear from him. And we thank you, Lord, even for the thousands of years in which you have kept your word, such that we, thousands of years later, can read it. Lord, we pray now um, that you would make your word clear to us, Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, sharpen our minds so that we can understand what your word is saying. Uh, 
And even more so, Lord, we pray that you would soften our hearts so that we would obey what your word is saying. Our Lord, that we would have faith and believe what your word is saying. Our Lord, I pray that this message, this text would define us, not just as individuals, but us as a community, as a church. Lord, that your word would form us. Um, Lord, we cannot do that in our own strength. We do that only by looking to you. So we are looking to you now in this moment. Meet with us, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, most uh, organizations or companies um, these days have some kind of value statement. They have some kind of statement about their values, the values that represent them. Right? So you go on any kind of website of an organization, you will typically see these are the kind of things, or in the workplace, they'll say these are the workplace values here excellence or diligence or humility or whatever it is. And it's a way of an organization kind of defining how they want people to relate to one another in that organization. They, they want certain values to define the relationships that people have. And here in chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is essentially giving us his value statement for the church. Um, Matthew 18 is telling us what life and relationship in the church ought to look like, what Jesus is valued for that is. Uh, this is the fourth major teaching block in Matthew. If you've been with us for a while, we said there were five major teaching blocks. There was the Sermon on the Mount. There was the discussion on mission in chapter 10. There was the talk about the nature of the kingdom and parables in chapter 13. And here in chapter 18, we're seeing what the value of the church is, how people in the church ought to relate to one another. And in one word, the value is the gospel. The gospel is the thing that ought to define how people relate to one another in the church. That's really the message of the whole chapter. And initially, the plan was we were going to do the whole chapter and then realize there's no way we can actually get through this whole chapter. So stay tuned. We'll have a part two next week. Nate will help us to see more of how the gospel defines relationships. But for this week, we're going to be looking at what was just read, verses 1 through 20, about what it looks like for us to relate to one another in God's kingdom, in Christ's church. And it all begins with a seemingly quite innocent question. Verse 1, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest? Uh, these days, more and more, I think people are debating about who the goats are. Who are the goats? Now, if I say goat, I don't actually mean the animal goat. Um, goat as in standing for greatest of all time. So people, def people debate, you will see people having discussions about who the goat is. Who is the greatest of all time? Uh, normally it's a kind of conversation that happens in sports. Like, you know, is Lionel Messi the goat of football? Is he the greatest of all time? Is he the greatest footballer? Is, is Novak Djokovic the greatest tennis player? And it goes to other kind of things. It's, you know, is Whitney Houston the greatest singer ever, right? And people debate this kind of thing. Who's the greatest? And when you're having that kind of discussion, you, you bring up their achievements, their accolades, their careers, what they've done. And you're comparing across people to see who, who's the best, who is the greatest. 
And that's something we do for sports stars and celebrities, but in fact, that's something we all do, right, just in society. From the youngest times, we are taught to strive for greatness. We want to be great. You're a kid in school, you, you want to be great. Maybe that's by being really popular. Maybe that's by getting good grades, right? Um, I mean, our parents want us to be great. You know, you come back home, some of us, you came back home with that B, and your, your, your mom or dad said, but the person that got an A doesn't have two heads. Why, why do you only have a B, right? You, you should do more, work harder, be, be great, right? In work, we want to be great. We're looking for that next promotion, and we, we want to learn what does it look like to be the best in this field or that field, right? It's, it's quite natural that we... We desire that. We compare ourselves to other people and we want to ascend. We want to do better. We want to be better even in comparison to others. And so it's no surprise then that even when it comes to the church, even when it comes to God's people, we want to be great. Um, Whatever greatness looks like here in the church, that's what we want. That's what the disciples are debating. At the end of the last chapter, we looked at this last week, They were told and they were taught that actually they were sons of the kingdom. And the next natural question is, okay, who's the greatest son in the kingdom? Um, What does it look like to be great in the kingdom? That's what the disciples are asking. If in school it's about academic work, if in, in work, if it's about, you know, doing well in your projects, what does it look like to be great in the kingdom? What do I need to do in order to be great? What are the rules for greatness? And the problem with this question is that the question betrays the fact that they have misunderstood that the kingdom of God is utterly unlike any other group. Look how Jesus responds. Verse 2, calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. The kingdom of God is different because it's defined by the gospel, which means this desire to be great, it doesn't actually make sense in God's kingdom. It doesn't make sense. See, if they are great, if, if there are people in any kind of group that are great, that are the goats, the greatest of all times, the implication is there are also some people who are not so great. There are some people who are just ordinary. There are the others. There are the little ones. That's what Jesus calls here. And so most communities, there are the great ones, the people at the top of the chain. And because there are people at the top of the chain, obviously it means there are people at the bottom of the chain. Jesus says, because the community, his community is defined by the gospel, more specifically, because his community is defined by union with Christ, it does not make sense to think that there are people who are greater or less great in his kingdom. So what Jesus does is he takes a child, he puts them in front, and he says to the disciples, unless you become like this child, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's quite ironic. These guys are asking, who's the greatest? Like, how can you be really great in the kingdom? Jesus says, you won't even get into the kingdom unless you become like a child. And the reason why Jesus picks a child is that in society at this time, children were at, like, the bottom. 
They were utterly dependent on other people. They, they didn't, the way people thought of children is that they didn't bring anything to the table, right? Um, they weren't very useful for things. I know we, we live in a society that's quite different, but that's the, the world in which Jesus is speaking. And Jesus is telling his disciples that the only way to even get into his kingdom is to come at the bottom of the pile, it's to be nothing. It's to have nothing. In other words, what Jesus is saying is the way into the kingdom is by realizing that we bring nothing to the table and wholly depending on Jesus. That's how you get into this community. Right? So stick with me here because I think actually Paul is helpful for us here. Paul in Philippians 3, he reminds us that the only way to be in the kingdom, the only way to gain Christ is actually you have to lose everything else. If you want to gain Christ, you have to be willing to count everything else as lost. In Philippians 3, Paul gives his resume, his CV of all the things that he was doing. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He was the top of the food chain. He, whatever kind of accolade you want to bring about, he had it. He's on his way to being the GOAT, the greatest of all time, the, the greatest Pharisee of all time. Right? And yet one day, by God's grace, he realizes that if he wants to be part of God's kingdom, he has to take all those things that to him were really impressive, things that made him different from other people, things that made him great. He had to realize that all of that was rubbish. If he wanted a place in God's kingdom. The the only way to be part of God's kingdom, to be part of God's church, is to come in empty-handed. Again, in the world, the thing that makes you great are the things that make you unique, your own achievements, your own abilities, your talents. And we can take that, we bring that into the church and we think, okay, people like this or that person or that person, those are the great ones. But in God's kingdom, in Christ's church, the only way you can be part of this is if you forego looking about anything in yourself and you purely look outside of yourself to Christ. Paul says, look, I stopped trying to get my righteousness, my status, by how I kept the law, by how good I was in Sunday school, by how many Bible verses I memorized. And I realized that the only way I could have any standing in God's kingdom was by getting my status, my righteousness, purely by what Christ had done, by what Jesus had done. It's membership by faith. And it's by faith, by trusting in Jesus, what happens, this amazing thing happens, is that we are actually united with Jesus. We become one with Jesus. And therefore, our status in God's kingdom has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Jesus Christ. Our accomplishments, our abilities, our talents, our energies have no bearing on our status in God's kingdom because in God's kingdom, it's all about Christ. As the hymn puts it, God's people in God's kingdom, we do not boast in anything. No no gifts, no power, no wisdom. What we boast in is in Christ, his death and his resurrection. If our status is not found in us, this is what Jesus is saying, because our status is not found in us, because it's found in Christ, it means that we all share the same status. In God's kingdom, we are all on the same level. That's what Jesus says. Jesus says, whoever receives a child like this in my name receives me. 
What he's saying is that if there's this child who seemingly brings nothing to the table, who belongs to me, that child is united to me, therefore how you treat that child is how you treat me. That child bears my status. Right? When you see your fellow brother or sister, what you're looking at is you're looking at Christ. Because the only way we become part of God's family is by being united with Christ. In other words, this question doesn't make sense. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Can Christ be greater than Christ? No. All of them belong to Christ. All of them share the same status. All of the things that maybe you might say this person is different, all of those things, they mean nothing when it comes to membership in God's kingdom. Therefore, you can't use any of those things to distinguish who's greater or who's less. In fact, membership in this kingdom, because it's by faith, because it's uniting us to Christ, we all, in God's church, we all have the same status, that of Jesus Christ. There is no one who is greater and there is no one who is less than. We all are the same because we are all united in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. And you know what? But before even like moving on through this chapter, it's helpful for us to think very practically here at church, SBC, how do we think of greatness? What do we think makes us great in God's kingdom? What do we think makes us great here in God's church? Is it that maybe the educated, those who are really educated, are the great ones, right? They're the ones that are more important than others. Maybe it's church leaders, right? We think the church leaders, those who lead the church, um, they're the ones who are great. They're more important than the other people. Maybe we think the people who use their gifts up front, they're the ones who are really important. They're the ones who are great. Maybe it's those who serve most in the church that are the great ones. Right? So the ones we think are really important in church, the people that are really important. You know, when I think about church, the really important people are the people that serve a lot. They're the ones that do a lot. You know, the, the guys that aren't as involved, they don't do as much. Yeah, you know, they're cool. But the really important people are, are the people that serve a lot. They're, they're doing a lot. Look, I want you to, to hear the words of Jesus Christ. There's no such thing in God's kingdom. There's no such hierarchy in God's church. Any attempt to be great because of something distinctive about ourselves actually puts ourselves outside of Christ. That's why Jesus says, unless you turn and become like this child, you won't enter into the kingdom of God. The second we turn and think, actually, no, it's my service. It's all the things I do. That's what makes me great. The moment I look away from Christ and look to myself, I put myself outside of God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, in Christ's church, there is no distinction in terms of the worth of people because every single person is united to Christ. Here in our church, the only way we enter God's kingdom is by faith. And that means we all share the same status. We are all the little ones. We are all God's children. There is not one of us who is more important than the other. Not one of us has more significance than the other. Not one of us is more indispensable than the other. Because the only thing that matters is Christ. Right? The church is a community defined by the gospel. Now, if that's true, what happens when we get this wrong? 
What happens when we get this wrong is that we end up hurting people and we turn them away from Christ. So, verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. The moment you have the great ones in the church and the not-so-great ones, what ends up happening is that the not-so-great ones end up being abused. They end up getting taken advantage of. They end up being neglected. And it can happen in such a way that that kind of thing leads people to turn away from Christ. So I actually don't think that the translation here, the ESV, uh, is, is all that helpful. Verse 6, it says, Whoever causes one of these little ones in belie- who believe in me to sin, uh, I think what would be better is perhaps to translate as the NIV does, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, to fall, Jesus here isn't talking about sin in general. He's talking about people actually turning away from the faith. He's warning that there's a way, when when we start to think about who can be great, when we think there's some kind of hierarchy within the church, what ends up happening is that we think there are people who are not so important, who don't need to be treated with the same care. And when we do that, we can end up turning people away from Jesus Christ. If you were to use today's terms, we might use terms like church hurt or spiritual abuse to talk about what Jesus is talking about here. And look, I know that's a complex thing and and we can't say all that there is to say. But it's important to notice this. This is a reality. People in church get hurt, especially by those who seem to be great. Especially by those who are leaders in the church. There are people who used to go to church and because of abuse they suffered by leaders will never again walk through the doors of a church, right? Because they've experienced some some serious abuse. There are people who maybe at once were really interested in the faith and because they, they were exploited financially, by people who seem to be really important in the church. They were never again thinking about Christianity. You know, every time you hear one of these scandals of abuse or abuse of power, people being mistreated in the church, every time you know there are people, in the wake of that, there are people who were going to church who will probably never go to church again. Right? And you know, sometimes in church, we don't, We don't speak about this rightly. We don't have the right compassion in this situation. When people turn away, we can be quick to say that, you know what, you're only turning away because your faith wasn't really in Jesus or you're turning away because, you know, you're trusting people rather than trusting Jesus. We can be quick to rebuke them. And it is true, it is true that everyone who turns away will bear their own responsibility. We'll see that later in this text. But I also want us to see the language that Jesus uses. Jesus speaks as if there are people who can cause others to stumble. That's a thing. That's a, that's a real thing that happens. People can cause other people 
to stumble. People can cause other people to turn away. And look, God is sovereign. Yes, God will keep his people to the end. Yes, and it's also true that at least on a human level, there are people who seem to be walking and they turn away. And sometimes that's because those people have been disregarded or abused by others within the context of the church. Jesus is saying, look, if you don't get this right, if you don't realize that membership in this kingdom, in this community, is being united to Jesus, if you don't realize that how we treat each person is how we treat Jesus, we are in danger of really hurting one another. This question, it seems quite innocent. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It can have quite disastrous implications and sometimes again it's not abuse sometimes it's negligence it's just there's some people we don't think they're that important we don't care too much for them and we can cause people to stumble and it might be that you're here today and you will say look you're in that category you're someone who's maybe you're just struggling to come back to church because that's been your experience and I want you to see how Jesus feels about this kind of a thing Jesus is angry about this. Jesus says, it will be far better to be drowned with a huge rock tied around your neck than to treat Jesus' people this way. In other words, when this, these things happen, Jesus sees it. Right? So every time we see issues of abuse in church or spiritual abuse and people are turned away from the faith and every time we mourn, and we're sad about it, we have to remember that none of that compares to the rage of the Lord Jesus Christ. The rage that he has for when people are treated like that in his church. And Jesus promises that the day of judgment will be terrible for the so-called great who think they can treat the so-called little ones in this way. Verse 18, and Jesus says, listen, deal with whatever sin you need to deal with to make sure we don't treat other people in this way. Otherwise, we will face eternal judgment. Jesus warns, that's not how it works in his community. That's not how it works in his church. And so, we're to be on guard against that. That's not, we we shouldn't be thinking about who the greatest is. Instead, Jesus gives us a model for how we are to think and live out our lives in the community. And it's a life that's defined by Jesus' love for his people. It's a life defined by Jesus' love for his people. And the way that love looks like practically is church discipline. And yet before we look at church discipline specifically, I want us to see that first part. It's defined by Jesus' love for his people. I want us to see Jesus' heart for his people. Uh, Verse 10 See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven the angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. In the Gospel of Luke, there's this parable of the the, the good shepherd, the the shepherd who goes after this lost sheep. He leaves the 99 to chase the one. And it's very similar to this, except it's quite different in a very important way. 
right? In Luke, it's talking about how Jesus searches after those who do not belong to the church, those outside, to bring them in. That's what Luke is talking about. But in Matthew, it's actually quite different. Matthew is talking about the love that the shepherd has for the sheep that actually is part of the community, but is straying. There's a sheep that's, that's their part of it, but the sheep is beginning to stray. And it's beginning to get further and further and further away. Right? The picture is there's a shepherd with a hundred sheep, and one of them is wandering away. And look, for that shepherd, this is really important. right? He's got 99, but each sheep is important. Not just like emotionally, but even just financially. Like Each sheep is, costs a lot. The shepherd can't afford to just say, you know what, it's cool, let's just keep moving. The shepherd has to go and find that sheep. That sheep is valuable. So even though he has 99, the shepherd has to go and look and search for that one. Jesus is saying that his heart, the father's heart, is like this. Verse 14, it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one, that one of these little ones should perish. Hear Jesus' heart. For the smallest sheep, for the seemingly not so great sheep, for the sheep that maybe no one thinks is that important, who is straying, Jesus has a heart for that one sheep. And Jesus is saying this because he wants, in the church, he wants our heart for his sheep to be like his heart for his sheep. He wants us to feel the way he feels about his sheep. That because they are God's people, they are indispensable. That no matter how great or they might seem in a worldly sense, they are so valuable to God and they should be valuable to us. Right? So, again, it's easy in the context of church life, right? We, we have situations where maybe, let's say, the church is growing and, and there's more and more new people coming in and, there's, and people seem to be walking well with the Lord and people seem to be growing in maturity. And on the, whole, on the whole, you would say, the church is really, you know, things are going well, people are growing, people are becoming more like Jesus Christ. And there's one person or there's a few people who, they're straying, they're walking in sin. They're walking, they're going further and further away from Jesus. And it's easy to say, you know what, like, that's a shame, but you know what? We're doing well. Look what we have. Things are fine. It's okay. Right? So that person, that's not good. I need to make sure I'm not like that. But you know what? Let me just focus on all the good that I'm seeing. There's, there's 100 sheep. One's gone. Okay, one's gone. There's still 99 here. Right? That's the way it works in the world. That's business, right? If loads of people are coming to your company, loads of people are added, and there's a few people that are disgruntled, you're like, cool, no big deal. Right? Collateral damage. That's not how Jesus thinks of his church. That's not how the church is to think of the church. There is a love that we ought to have for each individual, which means that for every single person that is part of this community, there is a love that means we do not want them to stray. You know, it's the kind of love that a parent has for a child. You might have 50 children. 49 of your kids might be doing well. If there's one child who's in deep distress, no matter how well the other ones are doing, it's not, you know what, on the balance of things, it's fine. No, your heart breaks for that one child. There's a love you have for that one child. Infinitely more so. There's a love that Jesus has for each one 
that belongs to his community. The welfare of each one matters. Each one Jesus died for, he gave his blood for, he cares for. He's not going to let one just walk away. He's going to pursue them, right? Every single time one of them, one of them wanders away, he's going to get on his cloak and he's going to go and pursue them. And his search party, as someone put it, his search party in pursuing lost sheep is the church. Right? Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Because no one is indispensable, uh, no one is dispensable, we are to be each of us our brothers and our sisters' keeper. And the way we do that is what we often call church discipline. And look, don't have the time to say everything that ought to be said on church discipline. We've taught on it before. If you, if you want that, come and see me. If you have questions, we have questions on Wednesdays, come and ask me. I'm not going to exhaustively say all that needs to be said about the issue of church discipline. It's such an important issue. But very briefly, I want us to see how this fits into everything we've seen so far. Christ loves his sheep too much to simply let them just stray. And the way he goes after his sheep is through the church. It's through the church. What does that look like? Firstly, it looks like being willing to lovingly confront sin when we see it. When someone sins against us, when someone is in sin, Jesus tells us that we ought to point it out to them in order to win them back. When we see someone straying, when we see someone living in a way that doesn't honor the Lord, our role is to go and to speak to them, to seek to get them, to keep them from strain. The, the point is to restore them. And notice, Jesus tells us how we do that. Go and tell them their fault, you and them, alone. Go and speak to them alone. The, the reason why Jesus says that is the goal here isn't to embarrass anyone. It's not to shame them. The goal is to win them. It's to bring them back. So when this happens and you see their sin, go and speak to them alone. I think this is easily top five most neglected commands in all of Scripture. When someone is in sin, when someone sins against you, Jesus doesn't say, go and tell everyone else what they're doing. Jesus doesn't say, go and rant about it with your friends. Jesus doesn't say, go and bring it up in the church prayer meeting. Jesus says, go and speak to them alone. It's, it's really clear. This passage, for all the, the challenge, is actually very clear. It's, it's really laid out. Jesus says, go and speak to them alone. That's what love looks like. We, we need to love one another to correct enough to correct one another. If we have the love that Jesus has for his sheep, we're going to love one another. When we see someone straying, we're going to love one another to, to actually speak to one another. And we're going to do that in love. Right? And so when we fail to do that, we fail to love. Look, I know some of us, we hate or anything like awkwardness, anything like confrontation. We just hate it. But if we love the sheep, the way Jesus loves the sheep. We're going to love the sheep enough to speak and to correct, right? 
And look, again, I'm not speaking exhaustively. If, if we're talking about crimes, things that are criminal, please just speak to the police. That's not what Jesus is talking about here, right? Don't, don't speak to them. Don't need to speak to them. Don't need to speak to me. Don't need to speak. If it's criminal, just speak to the police. That's not what Jesus is talking about, right? But go and correct your brother. Love your brother enough, love your sister enough to correct them. But sometimes that doesn't work, right? Sometimes they don't listen. Jesus gives us the next step. Take others with you, right? And I think these others are helpful because, number one, they help us to see whether this person really is in sin, right? Sometimes I might think someone is straying. I might think they're in sin, but they're not really. And so there's a disagreement. The person doesn't agree. They don't think they need to change. Well, bring two others with you, right? And those others can help discern whether this is a case of sin. And, and bringing other people, it adds to the weightiness of what's going on, right? Maybe it's easy to disregard one person, but now there's more people involved urging the sheep that string to come back, right? And again, if they listen, that's it. That's the end. You've won your brother. You've won your sister. The sheep is back in the fold. That's the goal. The goal is repentance. And yet, Jesus says, sometimes that still will not work. And so there are times then that it has to be brought to the church. And, and this, is, this is the most difficult part of this, right? Because Jesus says if they do not listen to the church, they are to be removed from the church. They are no longer to be treated as a brother or sister, but as a Gentile or tax collector. They are to be treated as someone who does not belong to the flock. And that's tough. That's brutal, and yet, here's the thing I want us to see. That's what it looks like for us to love sheep that are straying. That's what it looks like. That's what Jesus tells us. There is nothing worse for a sheep that is straying, to, that, a sheep that's straying that doesn't know that it's straying, that refuses to see that he or she is straying. Walking off along acting as if everything's fine, acting as if they actually are part of the flock when they are not. There is nothing worse than that. And each step of this church discipline is an attempt to get them to see your strain, you need to turn back. And the last step is to make them realize very clearly you, are not, you don't belong to the flock. You're not acting as the flock. We cannot call you one of the flock. And that's love to let people in that situation know that they are not acting as sheep. Again, the church, the value of the church is the gospel. The gospel requires repentance. It means we live life of repentance. Churches aren't to do this because this person did a really bad thing or because that sin seems so grievous. Churches are to do this where there's a refusal to repent. Because a refusal to repent is a sign that actually we are not walking with Jesus Christ. And more seriously, it's a sign that we are walking towards eternal destruction. What is at stake is eternity. When we talk about sheep straying, when we talk about people being lost, we're not talking about something temporal. We're talking about something that will last for all eternity. Something that will last Forever and ever and ever. A billion years and a billion years and more. What's at stake here? You cannot overstate this. When a sheep is straying and they continue to stray, what's at stake here is heaven and hell for all of eternity. And Jesus loves his sheep enough to, to look after, to go after, to search for that. And he does that through his church. It means that church, if we are to love 
the sheep the way Christ loves his sheep. We will love people enough to do church discipline. And that's a tragedy because the tragedy is that perhaps maybe the majority of churches, you don't even, we don't talk about church discipline, we don't practice church discipline. And the reason is in the name of love. Right? It's in the name of love. It's because it's, it's some idea of we want to be loving. Look, here as a church, we want to be loving. We will never say you don't belong to us. We will never say actually you're not living as a follower of Christ. We will never say you do not belong to the people of God. We will never treat you as a Gentile, as a tax collector. We won't do that because we're loving. That is not love. That's no love. That's not love. That's callous. Jesus loves. Jesus is the one who died for the sheep. Jesus is the one who goes after the sheep. And the way he does that is this. Right? If we love one another, if we care for one another, if you love the one sheep that's straying, listen, follow Jesus. And everything we do that disobeys this is the height of pride. What we are saying is that we know about love more than Jesus. We are more loving than Jesus. We know what it looks like to love more than Jesus. You do not. We do not. Our love, at the best of times, cannot compare. It's, it's not even worth talking about that in comparison to the love of Jesus Christ. And the way Jesus loves, the way he loves, is by going after the sheep. That is no love. It is no love when we see people heading towards hell, people that once belonged to our community, and we shrug our shoulders and say, ah, oh, that's a shame. That's no love. That's not love. When we simply say, oh, you know what, that's a bad thing. I'm, I'm, let me just focus here. Let me... Let me you know, keep my eyes down. That's not love. When we have some mistaken idea of privacy, as if, you know what, that's not my business, that's their business. That's not love. Love looks like doing what Jesus Christ has called me to do, called us to do. Look, if I tomorrow turn away and start living in sin, I pray you guys would love me enough to discipline me. I pray you would love me enough to do that. Right? If, if I, I get so wrapped up in my sin and so blinded by my sin and I'm heading along that way, I pray you wouldn't shrug your shoulders and say, oh, that's, that's a shame. I pray you would have the heart for me that Jesus has for his sheep. That's what love looks like. And as we close, look, as we do that, as the church does that, as Christ's search party, we have the promise of Christ's presence with us. So verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, or three, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Look, we, we often use these verses to talk about prayer in general, right? Binding and loosing, or even, you know, where two or three are gathered, or... If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. We, we normally use it to talk about prayer in general or even church gatherings in general. It's really important to bear in mind the context of this is actually church discipline. Very specifically, Jesus is talking about what happens when the church gathers to discipline. Discipline is such a weighty thing. It's such a weighty thing, right? To say that someone is not living as a believer is a weighty thing. Right? Um... To say that someone doesn't belong to God's people is a weighty thing. Um, and the promise here is that 
insofar as the church does this following Christ's command, they can be assured that Christ is with them. That actually the decisions they're making are decisions that are actually almost ratified by heaven. That's the promise here. It's the same thing you see, 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul talks about church discipline, he tells them to gather, and he says, as they gather to discipline, that the power of the Lord Jesus Christ would be present among them. Look, we're not acting by ourselves. We're not to act by ourselves. We're to love in this way, and we're to trust that Jesus will be present with us as we seek to obey him. And we're to do all of this because we love one another, because we belong to a community that's defined by the gospel. And my prayer is that by God's grace and through all these means, God will keep every single one of his sheep. He will, he will, he will. Every sheep, even the sheep that stray, those that belong to him, he will keep. I don't know how he does it. And sometimes discipline doesn't seem to work in the immediate. I don't know. We, we don't know that. One thing we do know, every single sheep that Christ has shed his precious blood for, he will keep to the very end. He will raise them up in the last day. And look, we, we've got to love people enough to do our role. We have a role in this. But ultimately, we trust that Christ is present with us and that Christ will keep us. And even more so, we pray that Christ might add to us. If there are those that aren't even part of this, that God, by his grace, he would add them to his fold. Let's pray. Gracious God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you define your church. And Lord, our constant temptation is to treat the church just like every other organization, just like every other group. Lord, forgive us when we have wanted to be the great ones. We want to be the important ones in church. We want to be the, maybe the popular ones in church. We want to be the smart ones in church. We think there's some ranking in your church. Lord, forgive us. Help us to see that whatever was gained, whatever thought it might seem important, whatever the world might think is impressive, all of that is nonsense and rubbish because all we have is you. Lord, forgive us because we have not treated one another as we treat. We've not thought of one another as you. We've not treated one another as we should, as those who are united with your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, forgive us when we have not loved each person enough to confront one another and to challenge one another. Lord, we fall far short of the community that you have called us to be. And yet, Lord, we ask that by your grace, you would give us grace. Here at SBC, we would live this out better. Lord, far better than what we are doing. That every single one of us, we would live this out better for your glory.